Yo, what's up, everybody? Today, we've got Kate O'Neill on the podcast, and she is the co-founder of a company called Teaming at Teaming.com. They make software to drive better employee engagement, better team engagement, help companies and teams accomplish their goals better. You guys will really enjoy it. Uh, Kate has built sales and marketing teams prior to her role in co-founding this company. She was a marketing manager at a company called Cloud Sherpas, which was acquired by Accenture. She was a director of revenue marketing and product marketing at a company called Sales Fusion, which was acquired by Sugar CRM. And she was VP of marketing at a company called LeanKit, which was acquired by PlanView. You know, she's been around the block and teaming came out of her and her former teammates at LeanKit's experience in, you know, collaborating as a team. And it's a really cool product. We use it actually on our marketing team. And, you know, I guess that's the way enterprise software works, right? It's not sort of a top-down thing. It can... Uh, land anywhere in the organization and expand. So great interview. Really enjoyed talking to Kate and I'm confident that you guys will enjoy this one. Kate, so tell us a little bit about teaming. Sure. Um, Well, I appreciate the opportunity. We recognize the need uh, and the impact of great leadership on teams and being part of, you know, high growth SaaS companies, you know, the, the ones that really stick out are the ones that have had great leadership. Um, And being part of a great team, right, is such a rare thing. When I think back in my career, um, there are a few teams that really stand out, um, but we don't think that should be the norm, right? Mm. If we're all spending all this time together, we should make it a really effective use of our time and a meaningful one. And so that's really what prompted the start of teaming was we want to be good leaders. We want to work for good leaders and we want to have a really high impact team experience. So it's grown from there, but for people who want that, that's who we're, we're working with. Yeah, that's interesting. So like the organizing principle of a team is a goal, a shared goal or a shared vision, right? How does teaming sort of help facilitate, you know, the creation and I don't know, execution of, of a goal? Good question. I think most people, they start with that, right? We've got all these ways to measure goals and it's important, right? It's important to measure our goals uh, and the, the impact our goals have. But we look at goals as a later stage attribute of really healthy, high-performing team. So the way that we've structured it is, you know, an effective team starts with psychological safety from psychological safety. They're able to have productive conflict out of productive conflict. They're able to drive shared commitment from shared commitment. They're able to hold each other and themselves accountable Mm. um, for a shared goal. Mm. And that's where you get to the the goal piece of it. Um, And then out of goals, right? What's the point of having measurable goals? It's to have positive impact. So you want to measure whether or not you're actually having positive impact, not just, am I getting these things done? You know, are the trailing indicators of my work good? And then the last thing is really looking at, do the individuals of a team have personal purpose and meaning? Those could be different, right? It doesn't have to be shared. Um, Could be you know, I'm providing for my family and that's my purpose and, and meaning, but it could be, you know, the, the mission and values of the company that drive you. It could be all different things, but we strive for team members to have personal purpose and meaning in their work. Mm, that's interesting. And so why did you guys choose OKRs as the unifying goal setting framework? 
Yeah, good question. Well, I think OKRs do a really phenomenal job of making sure that you take something that is meaningful, right? A mission and you make it measurable. Mm -hmm. And that's so important, um, having those measures in place, because it's the only way to know whether or not you had positive impact. And so that's really what we're getting towards is is being able to show that you've had positive impact, because that's such an important part of being able to have purpose and meaning in our work. So that's really why we drove um, the OKR model. But I do think there are other models, smart goals, they could do a good job of that as well. It's not to say that OKRs are the end all be all goal setting model, but we did choose it because it's simple and it's measurable. Yeah, totally. I mean, I can tell you that we, so we used to use this framework called the traction framework, and it's similar to Rockefeller habits, if you're familiar mm-hmm. with that. And the choke point we ran into was like, if you set a goal, that's, you know, uh, in our business, it'd be, let's say, like, get X amount of people hired in a month from the network. You know, you sort of have to be really prescriptive about how that's done. And there's no way to measure until the end of the quarter or month if that's done or not. There's no sub indicators that gives people direction. And it became very hard as the organization scaled to give folks that were more tactical guidance on whether or not they were doing the right thing. Then they can't find purpose, right? And then they can't find meaning and then they become disengaged. Yeah, that's tough. We've had similar feedback from folks using traction and yeah, Rockefeller, super successful. But, you know, I also think it's part of finding your way. The fact that you chose something to begin with, it means you're working on the business rather than in the business. And I think that's step one of, you know, every leader's journey is to say, you know, I need to dedicate a lot of time to working on the business. Something is better than nothing, I guess is my point there. Totally. Yeah. I 100% yeah. <laughs> agree. So, so then, you know, what's sort of like the driving mission for teams? Is it like, I think the starting point was psychological safety. So is that the end goal or is it that the business or the team will accomplish the goals with a higher degree of success? Yeah. So I think the the end goal is that people are really engaged in their team and Mm. that they find what is a shared experience that's valuable for them. Right. So if it is the goal, then that's it. Right. If it's, you know, enjoyment of work, that's it. So, yeah, that's a vague answer. But I think if we were to say what's the overall end goal? Yeah. I mean, we haven't architected a deal this large yet, but we look at our customer base. Any team can pick up teaming. They, it doesn't have to be an org wide implementation of a you know large piece of software. Totally. Um, but we see healthy, high performing organizations as a grouping of smaller, healthy, high-performing teams. And so, yeah, the ultimate promise of teaming, and teaming is a concept too, by the way, not just a company, but, um, you know, is that companies are able to team really well. And that, you know, in the past, we've looked at employee engagement as this really individual measurement, right? Is Joe happy at work? Is Kate happy at work? you know, is it fulfilling sustainably over time? And we look at it differently, right? We look at team engagement. If people are engaged in their teams, then employee engagement in the traditional sense goes up. Mm, That's interesting. So the focus seems to be on measuring engagement of a team 
through a series of goals rather than the accomplishing of one particular goal over a finite period of time. Yes, because the goal changes, right? And it can change dramatically. Also, I mentioned the concept of teaming in our traditional sense, and I think this is still changing today, but you know, I'm a marketer. I work in a marketing department. Back in the day, I only worked in the marketing department. I really didn't work with any other departments. Now, you know, that's changed quite a bit. I work with sales. I work with product management. I work with customer success, but I'm still in my department. We see the future of work being where teams are a conglomerate of people with different skill sets working towards solving different business problems. Marketing might not be my number one team in the future. It might be, you know, enabling sales in the UK. And as a marketer, I contribute to that. The customer success person contributes to that. And we're sort of centered around the business problem or the business goal. And we bring different skill sets to the table. How do you guys measure team engagement? And is that something that you guys measure as a function of your tool? Yeah. And I think anyone can measure team engagement. You don't have to use the tool. Obviously, we try to make it easier for you. Um, (laughs) But we measure the attributes that I just mentioned. For a single team, we measure psychological safety, productive conflict, Mm. commitment, accountability, et cetera, et cetera. It's a simple, anonymous survey tool that we recommend teams send every 60 days and they talk about them, right? They understand why these attributes are important to measure. And then they come out with actionable ways to make each attribute better. And Mm. then they set goals. OKRs is what we're using for this model too, right? You know, how do I improve my norms and practices to be able to have more psychological safety, have better productive conflict, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Can we go as far as to say that goals are better accomplished if the first three things exist? Or is there? Yes. Okay. It's been proven. There's a lot of studies. One person in particular who's amazing, she'd be awesome to have on this podcast, is Amy Edmondson. She sort of coined the psychological safety term and she's written a bunch of books on it. And she's done studies to understand the impact of psychological safety on teams and their outcomes. Okay, that's super interesting. You know, I'm curious, like, how do you reconcile teams, let's say, at big organizations that are sort of notorious for like a lack of psychological safety, you know, that are high performance organizations um, with teams that have a high degree of psychological safety that are probably good places to work? And I'm thinking like in particular about, let's say, traditional finance or maybe at big tech, you know, Amazon is a great example, right? I don't know if they index high on psychological safety, but they sure as hell index high on compensation (laughs) and growth, right? So I would love to have a framework of how you think about that or if there are trade-offs there and growth versus safety. Yeah, good question. So I think of cultures, company cultures as performance-based and learning-based. And I think the ultimate answer, right, is that every company has both in their culture. It's just whether or not they prioritize one over the other that you Mm. feel you know, Amazon's a performance-based culture. Google might be a learning-based culture, although they're Mm. probably a good example of a performance-based culture too. Um, (laughs) But, you know, performance-based cultures aren't bad, right? It's it's important to understand that we're all here to do something together and to measure that. Where I think the examples you used, where I think they really get it right, is that they look at learning as a way to facilitate performance Mm. rather than 
in opposition of performance. So, mm. you know, in marketing, I use this example a lot. Um, we test lots of things and we do it for the purposes of learning so that we can perform better later, not necessarily to perform, you know, to the highest standard right now. And so these are the examples you, you know, you mentioned um, high performance team that has low psychological safety. Those teams can be really effective for a very short amount of time. They don't have longstanding performance, right? It's spurty performance for lack of a better better term. But if you look at all of those teams, and this is the work of Amy Edmondson, she particularly looked at surgical teams. So a surgeon, you know, runs the show in the uh, surgical room, teams that have low psychological safety in that group in a surgical room, they make more mistakes than those who do. You can have, you know, the best heart surgeon doing your work, but if they're not able to facilitate a psychologically safe environment with the nurse and the PA and the resident, you know, everyone in the room helping to operate on your heart, you might be lucky to have a perfectly done heart surgery. But if you look at all of those surgeries over time, there are more mistakes than in groups that might not have the A-class surgeon, but mm. they do have psychological safety. Yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense. And, you know, as I'm thinking about it, I may have even phrased the question wrong because psychological safety may be a function not only of leadership, but of recruiting and of getting the right people who are excited to work in an environment where comp is clearly a function of performance. And there's, you know, what is that Jack Welsh thing? I forget what they call it, but there's like a thing where they would let go of the bottom performing 10%. Yeah, that, some people may like that. They may want to work in an environment like that and they may feel safe. Like, hey, if I perform, I'll still be here. You know, I don't know. It's a different era. Oh, actually, you know, one thing that I think about is like a lot of the traditional management books and learnings. If you go to like some big name business school, they come from a manufacturing era where like the organizations were very sort of hierarchical and the ability was concentrated at the top and they viewed process as the main driver of value creation. People were interchangeable. They were, you know, the famous Adam Smith example of like a pin factory or whatever. And today the competitive advantage of any company is talent. So, you know, how you actualize them and get them engaged. And it's just a different world. Like everybody in the company is really smart and like knows what the hell the company's doing. So that's our background. It's so funny that you brought that up. So our founding team worked for a company called Lean Kit here in, right. in Nashville. Stephen Franklin is one of our co-founders. Cool. And then our former head of engineering and our former co-CEO and me. You know, we basically left that experience feeling like we had doctorates in lean process management. And what was really unique is that, you know, you're right, lean and lean manufacturing came about in terms of physical manufacturing. And what we were trying to do was help knowledge work teams right. create processes. And what we figured out, you know, lean has these two pillars, continuous improvement and respect for people. And in the manufacturing environment, respect for people meant like safety standards and labor working hours, you know, making sure that we right. were physically making sure that workers were okay. But when you translate that to knowledge work, right, what does respect for people mean? Yes, obviously it means a safe environment, but I'm not worried about 
my hand getting cut off by a machine, you know, my, my computer here. Um, And we think having seen teams that have really knowledgeable process management folks, the most knowledgeable process management folks and comparing them to teams that might not be as mature in their process management, but they have really high psychological safety. In our experience with our tens of thousands of customers at LeanKit, the team that had high psychological safety and a little bit of secret sauce process improvement were better and Mm. more effective than Mm. the teams who really only focused on process management. Yeah, that that makes so much sense. I mean, it makes so much sense because it's not human beings doing the work. It's robots that human beings make, you know. And so for the robots to be built right, the people have to feel good. That's so interesting. I mean, as you know, we spoke to, I don't know how many software companies in this podcast. And that's the one thing you can see is like, it's no longer like, here's our policy, everybody do this. It's so much more collaborative these days. Yeah. 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 And we think, you know, we, we haven't built this part of the app yet, but we're, we're looking forward to it is so much of psychological safety and productive conflict is how teams make decisions. If you think about it, right, like, do you always make decisions with a decision making model in mind? Mm. Probably not. Right. Most people mm. don't. Um, most groups don't. Most leaders don't know to do that. And then, you know, the speed with which groups can make decisions to me, that's the bottleneck to performance, right? You can perform better if you can make faster decisions, but you can't necessarily perform better if you don't take the time to figure out how to make good decisions, right? And how to have an environment where people feel safe to bring up a differing opinion, have a voice in the decision-making arena, if you will. Otherwise, you'll just make bad decisions faster. <laughs> totally, totally. What's your framework around decision making? Uh, I don't know that there is one that's better. It's really being aware of the situation that you're in. And as a leader, right, helping to guide how a decision is being made, being aware of what's happening on the team and correcting as you go for the situation. And that's Mm. really vague and hard, but I think it's important. Totally. So I'll ask it differently. So Jeff Bezos has like a regret minimization framework that he famously articulated, which, you know, I can't remember the exact phrasing, but he was like, make a decision that minimizes your regrets 20 years later. So it's a very risk on approach, right? It's like when you can swing big, swing bigger, right? Take the jump, make the move, whatever you want to do, take the leap, right? And so I think that that's a really powerful decision-making strategy for me. But, you know, I'm curious to hear, do you have something like that that you think about personally, not even as like what you put in the product, but you as Kate? It's funny that you bring that up. I wasn't aware of Bezos's model, but I mean, it obviously makes sense. It makes um, sense. Given, <laughs> yeah. Um, for me, I think about a lot of decisions being a trade-off decision between your narrative self and your experiential self, right? Like, what is the narrative that I want my life to be? Mm. I often think about, which is probably not good, but <laughs> I often think about, you know, on my deathbed, what would be my regrets and what would I value most, right? So yeah, regrets, but also, 
you know, did I live the life that I chose or worked towards the life that I wanted for those years? And then, yeah, your experiential self. Sometimes those things are in conflict and then that's what makes decision-making hard, but you just don't realize that those things are in conflict, right? Like I want to eat four tacos, but I also want to be a healthy person. Um, So yeah, being aware of making that trade-off decision is probably my personal guide. So do you have one? I'm curious. So, you know, it's funny, like a lot of the people that I admire for their business savvy seem to have some sort of method or process by which they measure data and they come to a decision, you know, and some, they like to go away to a cabin or something for a month and think about it. Some you make it fast if it's reversible. Like I think that's Bill Gates's decision framework. He'll make like irreversible decisions slowly and reversible decisions quickly, which I think makes sense. You know, if you ask my team, they're probably the better people to articulate this. I honestly think I try to minimize the amount of decisions I make every day. That's what I really try to go for. And I try to never make the same decision twice. So my team will tell you that like, if I have to repeat something, I'm not very happy about it. You know, because I, I expect <laughs> if we make the decision, it should be this way. Unless reality changes, you know, we got to readjust. But that's the closest thing to my decision making framework. It's probably something like make every decision once. Unless you're wrong, then adjust. But if it's right, just keep doing it, you know? Yeah. 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 So, you know, is your regret sort of minimization? Is that what kind of precipitated you to launch teaming like in a high function at multiple companies prior? And you kind of wanted to take the learnings from Lean Kit and move sort of in the direction against maybe instituting process in a company. Good question. I sometimes think, why am I here? You know, (laughs) we all go through that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That doesn't end. And, And I think, yeah, entrepreneurship is definitely the time in my life where I have questioned that more than ever. So I don't know if you feel that way, but, but that's been my experience. Um, yeah, I felt like for my whole career, I wanted to be a marketing leader of a, you know, high growth SaaS company or a technology mm. company. I wanted to build brands that are, you know, unforgettable that drive really amazing experiences for customers. I love the service part of, marketing. That was my path for my whole career. And, you know, Lean Kit was probably the pivotal moment of like, this is such an amazing experience. It was such a great team. I just was fulfilled with where I wanted to go. And I felt like we did all the amazing things that, you know, I had personally set out to do. So I was in this moment. I remember my now co-founder, my former co-CEO, saying, okay, you you know, you're fulfilled in these things. Now what? Like, what's your next step? And I'm like, well, let me enjoy this for a minute here. Like, I want to live in (laughs) this, you know? Um, And it was a moment where you're like, oh my gosh, I do need to decide what's next. And that was probably two years before we founded teaming. So yeah, I was drawn to this because one, you know, the team that I'm working with is great. We want others to experience that. So of course it would be a motivation for us. And then really a challenge, right? Being a marketing person, I've always stepped into a company that had product market fit and there's no place I feel more comfortable than being able to drive demand from that point. But Mm -hmm. From a marketing perspective, I've really learned to love finding product market fit. And I have so much more appreciation for the startups that I've stepped into where they struggled to find it and to get to the point where they were at to go drive demand. It's been a really unique and challenging 
experience to get to this point. And I, I love it. I, I look at everything from a marketing perspective. And so I'm so glad I've had the opportunity to be able to start something from nothing. That's so cool. So you basically worked for the CEO and now he's your co-founder. How's the relationship changed? Is there like, are there vestiges of that old hierarchy or not? You know, I'm just so curious about how that works. Yeah. Well, so he's our CEO now too. Got it. Um, so there's four of us as co-founders, but yes, I mean, I don't know if this is something you would resonate with you, but you know, in the beginning, right, you're just all a team trying to figure things out and it is a more equal dynamic, but you go through these things together and there's a natural leader that comes out, right? And he is that person for us. And I think it's been really good for our team dynamic to have that. It's sort of like we added the team member dynamic to it, but also we have a natural leader, which I think a lot of, I've heard this anyway, that a lot of founding teams struggle to find, you know, who becomes the natural leader out of the group. And we kind of mm. already had that going in. Yeah, that's so interesting. In our case, I can even back up and draw a through line to this notion of like questioning entrepreneurship. So I will say that in, in our case, I've become more certain that I enjoy it over time, which is usually a good indicator, right? But when you first get started, you're kind of like, what am I doing really? Like, was I put on this earth to make a website? Is that my highest and best <laughs> yes. use of my talents as a human being? You know, and then I think over time, as the meaning becomes reinforcing because you build the team, they motivate you, they encourage you, you have to protect them, you have to grow them, you add more, you want to create and foster a great workplace culture. And so I think the meaning becomes self-reinforcing. You know, I started this company out of my old bedroom in my mom's house. I was like, <laughs> yeah, I was like 24, you know, so it is what it is. Have you read Julie Zoe's A Making of a Manager? No, oh, I need to read that. It's really good. She was an intern at Facebook. She was a Stanford grad. She interned while she was there. When she graduated, she joined full time um, and she ended up being there. I think she just left recently. Wow. But she wrote about exactly that, right? I started as a kid in this company that I was their first design hire. And then she grew to find so much meaning in creating a great workplace environment. The book itself is such a good resource for people learning for the very first time how to lead a team. There's so many good management books out there that kind of describe like how they did it. Um, and a making of a manager helps to provide a framework for you to create your own leadership style. I don't know if that makes any sense. It does. It does. Yeah. It's really interesting. So what's on the 2021 roadmap for teaming as far as product goes? So right now, um, I think we're really good at helping managers run good team meetings, good one-on-ones to set goals, right? To And to get into that cadence of measurable goals. And of course, to measure team health. We also do, are you familiar with the DISC assessment? Yeah, of course. You can take an assessment in teaming and learn cool. a little bit about your style and the style of your teammates. And that's in effort to help build psychological safety, right? Communication is such a foundation of that. And the DISC really helps you to be a better communicator. So those are the things that the app does really well right now. We have this goal to be everything you need to lead a healthy, high-performing team. So we hope that this year we'll be able to add in some more fundamental parts of that. So one would be feedback and recognition, 
right? How can we help people to learn how to give really effective feedback, how to receive effective feedback? And then, you know, recognition, how can we help people learn how to recognize others in the way that they prefer to receive recognition? We've talked about before we started recording about being somewhat introverted here. I would totally. rather die than have someone recognize me in front of a group, you know, but, but we just don't realize that sometimes. So that'd be one big functional area that we'd want to build out in the app. And then, yeah, another one, we kind of alluded to it, but it's decision-making models. We definitely want to get more robust, intentional ways of people understanding how to make better decisions as a group. Mm. And then, you know, right now you really, this is more technical, but I think it's important. You have to log into teaming to use teaming. And never foresaw ourselves building an app where it was sort of closed, right? We want to be truly integrated into the tools that teams already use, project management tools, chat tools, you know, even browsers to make it easier to do these things. We have grand plans. My head of product management is probably going to um, kill me for this, but <laughs> we have grand plans to to be into the voice space too. Cool. You know, we're having this meeting right now. How can we analyze the conversation in a way that helps us to have a better one next time? Yeah. Even just taking meeting notes, right? Like take them for me, you know? <laughs> totally. Um, and record the bottom line. Just like, what do I need to do or what do I need to know? Yeah, yes. exactly. So that's really cool. So the vision of teaming is to basically be everything that a team needs to execute and work together in, in one place. What's like the, the world that you guys would create, let's say when you guys achieve like Jira scale, like ubiquity, you guys are in every company. What's that vision look like? Yeah, good question. I think we would want to be a you know, mission critical part of someone's fulfillment in work. Yeah, we, we spend so much time working. If we can be an enabler of being able to find more fulfillment, um, more joy and more mm-hmm. effectiveness and more growth, right, for individuals, that would be huge. If we can be associated with the idea that we're building better leaders, that would be huge. That's so cool. So it's like, you know, everybody can learn how to be a leader through the use of teaming. We're starting, actually, I'm so excited about this. The response has been unbelievable. We're starting a community of leaders, basically like, and I would foresee our content being this way too, where it's people sharing real life leadership experiences, real life failures, real life questions about, you know, not knowing what to do so that we can learn from each other in real world practical application, no fancy titles or, you know, research projects behind it necessarily. I mean, maybe we'll get into it down the line, but I think we'll find some more approachable ways to learn leadership and the community aspect of it. Leadership is lonely. So being able to connect with people like you in similar situations and being able to ask questions that we often can't ask in our own environments, right? Because Mm. we are expected to know the answers from our managers. We can't ask our teams because that's, you know, how we're trying to get better. And they don't have, you know, they haven't learned the skills yet. Um, And perhaps we don't have peers that we can talk to in an organization. Why is leadership lonely? Good question. Leadership is lonely. I think one, when you first become a manager, right, your very first time leading a team, it's naturally alienating. You know, the power dynamic changes where you are the person that people look to, to decide things, to set the example. And it's this unique set of people, right? A peer 
has a different set of people that they're mm. leading. So you can talk about some shared experiences, but ultimately you're leading this group of people. They're in your charge. You're taking care of them. You're reliant on them. You're supportive of them specifically. No other person has that experience of leading that group. Yeah, I think that's so true. I definitely agree it's lonely, but I haven't been able to pinpoint why. You can't talk about it to any of your friends. You can't talk about it to your significant other. You can't really talk about it to like your investors, you know. That's it. Um, yeah. And but how important is it, right? You spend how many hours a day in that lonely position, right? How important is it to find some outlet for, or at least being around people who have a shared experience? It makes me a better leader. I don't know if you found. Yeah, it does because it helps me just be like, hey, this is normal. You know, it's not abnormal to feel this way. And I think, you know, especially because entrepreneurship and leadership is so lonely, I need like level setting conversations. I really do to be able to contextualize my own experience. So. I call it, I'm getting wrapped around the axle. Yeah, exactly. So since you run a business, you probably, even after dinner, you're thinking about work. How do you disconnect and say, hey, okay, it's time for bed. We're going to pick it back up in the morning. Well, there's been lots of sleepless nights, so I'm not sure I'm I'm good at this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Same. Uh-huh. So, so take that with a grain of salt. But yeah, I think, you know, putting the phone and the computer down, you know, 10 o'clock comes And if I haven't put my phone down by like 9.45, I'm not sleeping. It's just not going to happen. I need consistency and schedule, mostly around sleep for me is a big one. I have to be asleep by 10.30. Otherwise, Mm. it's just going to be a bad day the next day. 100%. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, sweet. All right, Kate. Really enjoyed it. It's awesome getting to know teaming and get to know you and you should come back. Would love to kind of do a demo of it, you know, on air. That'd be really fun. So yeah. Oh my gosh. I would love that. Um, Yeah. And same. I'm so glad we're connected and you know, Nashville tech is so I think hard to come by these days. Totally. Awesome. (laughs) Well, thank you. Thanks. Bye. Hey, thanks for checking out the frontier podcast produced by gun.io. We're the hiring platform companies use to find the best talent in software development. If you enjoyed the show and want to learn more about how to hire or work with us, head over to gun.io to get in touch. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast produced by gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to gun.io and get in touch. Let us know you heard the podcast and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.